absolute privilege to have George Davis Smith come over from, uh, from Bristol today. Um, he's a professor of clinical epidemiology there, visiting professor at Biomedical School of Hydrogen and Tropical Medicine, honorary professor at the University of Glasgow, and I'm sure the list will continue to grow as he becomes ever more august. Um, he's director of the Avon Longitudinal Study of Parents and Their Children and the MRC Centre for Causal Analysis and Translational Epidemiology. So he's interested in um, how exposures to uh, 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 socially patent exposures across the life course shape health and health between individuals, between populations. Um, and he's also interested in integrating genetic epidemiology into life course studies. So genetics, environment, life history, um, all the things that um, interface um, anthropology, genetics, epidemiology. Um, big subject, um, and um, today I will clarify phenotypic variation and trying to understand them um, um, with polygenic multifactorial traits. The issue is indeed extremely complex. So at the end of your talk, um, we'll applaud and then move next door. We may We have option of applauding. <laughs> uh, and then we'll move, move next door for, for a sort of a relaxed uh, question time. That's okay. Yeah, that's great. Thanks. So thanks very much uh, for the invite. And I'm going to um, uh, spend this time basically reflecting, uh, as an epidemiologist, which is uh, what I am, uh, reflecting uh, on our abilities to explain phenotypic variation. I'm not specifically talking about um, obesity, I'll use examples from, uh, from that uh, field, but I think the general, I think the general issues apply um, to body mass index obesity as much as they do to many other phenotypes that I've um, been interested in. And so, oh, I can't the slides. Okay. So, I'm reflecting as an epidemiologist about why we actually, why epidemiologists <coughs> do bother to get up in the morning, and the, the, the main ambition for an epidemiologist of epidemiologists is to identify modifiable causes of disease, and we want to identify modifiable causes of disease because these can be utilised to leverage uh, improved population health, so a particular issue around identifying causal factors, and uh, in Jerry Morris's classic, uh, now 50-year-old textbook, Uses of Epidemiology, Indeed, the identification of modifiable causes of disease was the um, fundamental task which underlay uh, all other uses of the discipline. So it's sometimes um, disappointing when we think that uh, epidemiology has identified some, definitely has identified some important modifiable uh, exposures. Uh, cigarette smoking <coughs> being uh, its most uh, cherished example, I guess. But even with when one has very strong risks, such as sort of relative risks of around 20 for uh, cigarette smoking and lung cancer, if you measure lifetime of cigarette smoking, of course at the individual level you have examples like this. This is Winnie, who has uh, smoked for 93 of her 100 years, and she's lighting, the, uh, she's lighting her cigarette from her 100 candles on her 100 uh, birthday cake. So clearly, uh, at the level of uh, individuals, there's a fair amount of uh, failure um, to predict outcomes. 
And this is very explicitly, these issues have been very explicitly discussed and indeed were one of the drivers behind the development of um, life course approaches to chronic disease epidemiology that uh, Stanley mentioned um, in the introduction. And the notion here is that, um, sure, you know, we don't do very well at, uh, at identifying uh, individual level risks, but part of that is because of the uh, methodology of uh, epidemiology, the sort of large numbers fail to allow for adequate collection of data relating to exposures across the life course. And over the last uh, um, decade and or decade and a half, there's been definitely a growth of interest in uh, exposures acting right the way across life from before birth, through the fetal development period, early infancy, right the way through to adulthood. And the notion is that if, we, if we'd actually managed to um, adequately assess exposures acting across the life course and take them into account, we would do much better in terms of identifying causal processes that lead to disease and identifying individual level risks. So this very recent book, the, uh, Oxford University Press, uh, quite close to here, physically located, doing a whole series of books edited by Ezra Sosseliot, Ben Schroer and Diana Koo uh, on life course epidemiology. And the latest uh, book recently out is this uh, epidemiological methods in life course research. And one of the a long chapter in this book by Jade Costello and Adrian Angle discusses about measurement issue and uh, design for life course studies and explicitly looking at individual differences in development. So they're explicitly looking at how methodologically we can uh, collect data about individual life courses that allow us to predict at an individual level outcomes. And this is very much seen as the task of uh, life course epidemiology. Or from a different uh, uh, discipline, um, and, um, one can see the similar sorts of drives, in fact similar sorts of drives have been going on for longer, sort of life course epidemiology borrowed from uh, uh, other disciplines, obviously uh, there's a very long-standing notion of uh, life course in sociological and uh, psychological research. And here's a, a well-known book, uh, now 20 years old, edited by Michael Rutter, Studies in Psychosocial Risk, and a chapter by um, David Farrington on um, offending, you know, why do some people, why do some, almost all, or, you know, why chromosome is a good predictor, but why do some people uh, offend and some people uh, not offend. And uh, again, in this chapter, Farrington discusses how you know, the concept of cause within this disciplinary uh, field was inevitably involves the concept of change within individual units. So if we want to understand why some people offend and why other people don't offend, we've got to look at uh, measure factors at the individual level and look at change within individual units and then we'll be, well, then we'll be able to predict. And the only exception to this uh, that was discussed by uh, Farrington here was that uh, randomised experiments are different because in randomised experiments with large samples, the randomisation ensures you have groups of uh, groups that don't differ with respect to um, factors that influence the outcomes, and you can actually isolate the effect of the exposure, which is randomised, as a causal factor. But the basic notion was that was that uh, one has to look at change within individual units and measure such change within individual units. So this is a very strong. Tradition and uh, well, so increasingly strong in uh, in epidemiology. Now, of course, again, moving you know further afield uh, disciplinarily, clearly when looking at uh, causality in um, other areas, looking at very particularly and in great detail at individual trajectories is what this is all about. And this is a fantastic 
uh, book, if, if you're someone like me who happens to like detective novels or murder novels, this is a, a recent book two or three years ago by Stephen Kerr, uh, Culturalist of Causality, Science, Murder Novels and Systems of Thought, which is about notions of cause uh, as they are dis uh, displayed in um, crime novels. And the... Sorry, I'm sorry to interrupt you. In, in the previous slide, yeah. the um, uh, randomization is quite often quite difficult if you're looking at um, social causes. Yeah, yeah. Um, would he have included um, case control studies in that? No, no, no. He's talking here. Here he's talking about randomization because, yeah. it, because it balances the founders in ways that case, and case control studies don't. Don't no. Unless you're looking at, I'll finish on that. Unless you're looking at genetic factors, they don't. And they do for genetic factors, but I'll get on to that at the end. So, um, so, so Kern here is looking at uh, is looking at um, uh, levels of explanation in murder novels, and he comes and he is a great book, highly recommended to people like murder novels, and he has a, a chapter on each uh, different um, sort of category of uh, causal factors. He says, you know, why does someone murder someone uh, in this novel, and the, and the sorts of factors are those that you know we're quite interested in when explaining population health or phenotypic difference in many areas. There's the notion that uh, the, the reason for the act can be dated back right the way through to biology, to ancestry, to the animal nature of people. It's the uncovering of atavism, uncovering the animal nature leads to, uh, leads to the murder. Or it's sort of genetic, it's a sort of bad seed notion. And really quite interesting, especially going back into 19th century novels, notions of imprinting, things happen very early on, including, you know, during pregnancy, when the person is actually a sort of fetus, something happens which, which indelibly stamps them, and uh, 30 years later they're, they're uh, killing, the, um, uh, killing their landlady. Um, the second notion is, is childhood, and of course, those of you murder films as well, you know, Hitchcock's films, how many of those actually go back to the, the real reason that this person is carrying out this act was that they saw this red cloth that they're mother who was working as a prostitute uh, uh, had and that this made them flashback and they, the act comes out. Sexuality of course, especially in uh, German novels and uh, German uh, films, is related to, can be seen to be underlying um, the, the crime. Emotion, again, very obviously jealousy, revenge, greed, but these are sort of all, can be all individually explained. Mental illness and sociopathy are often seen to be the uh, underlying Factors, and then you, you get to the uh, notion of the, the sort of Nietzschean uh, beyond good and evil notion where the, the murder is a sort of uh, nihilistic act, an act which actually defines what it is both to know limits and to be able to decide to transgress limits. And then there's a very long chapter on society, you know, uh, society may just do it, made, made me do it uh, line, which of course is what epidemiologists uh, know all about, it's what we study, particularly interested in socially. Uh, variable um, causes of disease. And those are the categories, you know, these are the sort of categories of when looking at trying to explain a particular uh, narrative. Being an American academic book coming out in 2004, there had to, of course, be a, a chapter of sort of postmodern guff about the linguistic turn and language, which is unreadable. The rest of the book's fantastic. You can just ignore, you can just happily ignore that uh, chapter that uh, Kern has put in. And, and, you know, much as in murder novels, one, one is this sort of search explanation. Of course, in novels, the search explanation usually ends happily, or, or, or not in recent novels, but usually ends. But there is some uh, possible, there is some uh, explanation. Again, you know, going to, to real life, this obviously dates me here. I'll almost certainly be the only 
person in this room who saw George Lucas perform on about ten occasions. Uh, this is the people that I know the recent film Control about uh, Ian Curtis and the uh, band called Joy Division, the guy, the young, young man, uh, singer in this band who then sort of hanged himself at the age of 23 and an inordinate amount of, uh, dis of uh, discussion for a certain type of person about, about this, his life, his very short life has been analysed not just in the recent film Control but in several books, trying to find sort of explanations for an act, but of course at an individual level when you move from novels, when you can have this rather nice, uh, um, uh, uh, polished off uh, sense in life, of course, the explanation doesn't come any closer, really. Even when you watch Control or read these books, you can no closer to that level of explanation. Or more recently, Heath Ledger, the same thing. Now, so moving on from sort of murder novels um, uh, and life, in medicine, and so now moving into sort of the area that I work, is thinking about causation in scientific medicine. I think here we, have to, if we go back to what's often seen as one of the foundational texts of scientific medicine, Claude Bernard's Introduction to the Study of Experimental Medicine in 1865. There is a very clear and defensible notion of cause. And here, and here Bernard talks about how you know, a surgeon performing um, operations and he, he does two different approaches and he tries to make a statistical summary of deaths and recoveries to decide about which approach is best and uh, what uh, Bernard said is that if he looks at the mortality ratio between the operations that this ratio means literally nothing scientifically. So to, so to Bernard, when one was calculating these averages, they actually mean not, literally nothing scientifically because there's no certainty in performing the next operation. And Bernard goes on uh, in this book to say that, you know, that, that uh, in the patient who succumbed, the cause of death was evidently something which wasn't found. That's a bit self-evident. The patient who, in the patient who recovered, there's something we must determine, and then we can act on the phenomenon or recognise and foresee them accurately. So there's this inexplicable, these inexplicable reasons for how outcomes differ. We've got to, we've got to discipline those reasons. The law of large numbers never teaches us anything about it any particular case. This is a bit challenging for epidemiologists that large numbers never teaches anything. What a physician needs to know is whether his patient will recover and only the search for scientific determinism may lead to this knowledge. So anything that wasn't doing this, Bernard you know, considered explicitly as being anti-scientific, as not being scientific, not contributing to experimental medicine. And this deterministic notion of course that ultimately we have to, we have to seek to just reduce the, what's un, un, unexplicable. Uh, to a deterministic levels of explanation is very clear in many sciences and those of you who have read Ian Hacking's work for example on emergence and notions of probability will know that very well that, uh, that, that any decline in this coincided with the de decline in deterministic certainty in physics in, in, phys in physical sciences and that then allowed there to be built in some, uh, <coughs> some uh, notion of constrained indeterminism now, in scientific sociology, as opposed, into, as opposed to experimental medicine, causation was often, or, or was thought of differently. It's a quote, in a given state of society, a certain number of persons must put an end to their own lives. About suicide, this is the general law, and the special question is to who shall commit the crime, suicide was then, of course, uh, depends, of course, upon special laws, which, however, in their action, must obey the large social law of which they are all subordinate. So suicide rates uh, constantly, you know, show constant ranking between countries, even between areas within countries. The actual rate in countries doesn't change very much. 
over time you can predict averages, but at the individual level you can't predict at all. And the power of the larger law, this, this, this abstracted larger social law, is, is so irresistible that neither love of life nor fear of another world can avail anything towards even checking this operation. People, any idea who that would be from? That quote? People always say Durkheim, but in fact, uh, Durkheim, in the beginning of the 20th century, but it was actually Henry Thomas Buckle and his amazing book on the history of civilization in England uh, in 1857, who was, who was the scientific study of society and the scientific study of history, who looked very much at how one could make laws, law like statements about how phenomena acted at an aggregate level. But of course, as I say, within uh, microsciences, this notion of determinacy, determinism so obvious in Bernard, is breaking down a bit at the individual level of determinacy. And this is a quote from uh, you know, Russell, who says that the notion of causes is actually meaningless in any attempt, in, in any philosophical system. And I like the notion that uh, uh, the law of causality, I believe, like much that passed and muster among philosophers, is irrelevant of bygone age, surviving like the monarchy, only because it is erroneously supposed to do no harm. So uh, explicitly stating that you know that it was a false trail to try and look, to try and actually identify such deterministic causal pathways as a false trail. And here's Pearson summarising the work of his hero and mentor Galton in the uh, 1880s, just saying that we've moved from a notion, we're moving from a notion of determinacy to a notion of being a myriad of correlates, of correlated um, variables, just you know, approaching sort of infinite numbers of possible um, underlying factors, and that you've never moved to, never reached perfect correlation or the absolute causality. So moving away from that notion, uh, Bernard's notion of uh, determinacy, or in, you know, in sociology now, so sociologist rather than Buckle, uh, not Durkheim, but Weber, an exhaustive causal investigation of any concrete phenomenon in its full reality is not only practically impossible, it's simply nonsense. The more general and the more abstract the laws, the less they can contribute to the causal implication of individual phenomena. So, we have this situation where there's definitely a tension around whether or, or how much our role is to describe individual or group level phenomena and whether actually we can aim at looking at individual trajectory and make sensible scientific statements about it. Now, in, when, in the field of uh, phenotypic variation, in the field of uh, epidemiology uh, and other forms, many other forms of behavioural uh, sciences, one of the dramatic demonstrations, maybe, of the difficulties of explaining individual trajectories is the issue of why are children in the same family so different from one another, seeing what they share. And um, some of you will know this extraordinarily important uh, paper that came out 20 years ago Robert Plo uh, from Robert Plowman, Plowman's group in the Bergman Brain Sciences. It's asked the question, why are children in the same family so different from one another? Because genetics apart, if you take the genetic relatedness obviously that exists apart, and siblings from a whole host of phenotypic outcomes, many of the things that Plowman and Daniels were looking at were um, uh, you know, was psychological behavioural characteristics, but for a whole host of, of, uh, of uh, physiological and uh, uh, medical outcomes, the same is true of genetics apart, siblings are no more similar than two randomly selected individuals from the population where they come from. Of course, you've got to you know, 
you know, two individuals randomly from you know, Oxford, you don't get one from Oxford and one from Papua New Guinea, there's quite a lot of big difference that then exists, but if you get these just sample um, individuals from a population, then siblings, take, uh, once you discount the genetic similarity, siblings are no more similar for many outcomes than our two randomly selected individuals from the population they come from, and this is true to a, to a first approximation for body mass index and obesity. Now, of course, you know, siblings, by definition, share many of the things that life course epidemiologists have been interested in. You know, we've done a lot of epidemiologists have looked at things like the housing quality in childhood, you know, mould on the wall. Well, you know, siblings share the mould on the wall. Or they've looked at whether the father was unemployed and the family was poor, whether there's, you know, poverty in the household during childhood, or they've looked at family-level diets, etc. Many, many factors, of course, are shared by siblings. And these are the things that we study. And yet, taking a different view on this, what one sees is this, this apparent paradox, uh, paradoxical situation that siblings are so different, virtually no more similar than two randomly selected individuals. I sort of read this, I did psychology before, well, I've been integrated to, to 40 years here. In Oxford, in psychology, when I was doing medicine, I, and I came across this paper uh, when I was a junior doc, and going into, uh, well, going into epidemiology. And I can remember reading it and thinking, this just cannot be true. I can't work out why this isn't true, but it can't be true. And it's haunted me for 20 years. So this, this meandering talk is a, is a reaction of 20 years of being haunted by this finding. Okay, so what, we're looking for differences in health and other outcomes. Then, whether you know better than I, you know, you can do a lot of studies such as partitioning variants in twin studies or other family-based studies, including adoption studies, Obviously, twin studies and adoption studies being some of the most, some of the strongest methodological studies, and you can partition the variants crudely into genetic contribution, broad or narrow, but then into shared environmental contribution, which is something which is shared between people brought up in the same home environment, and certainly shared between these my two sons, as you might guess, because otherwise I'd have to get a you know, license uh, signed to be able to show the pictures on. Uh, and then things that are not shared, non-shared environmental contribution. So you make so this is this partitioning, genetic, shared and non-shared, shared environment and non-shared environmental contribution. And such studies generally generate zero or near zero estimates of the influence of shared environment. And this is the case for body mass index and obesity, with the exception of looking at uh, looking at in the first few years of life. So twin studies which have looked at age four, for example, the biggest twin study looking at age four shows some evidence of a shared environmental contribution. But by the time twins are 12, 13, and then older, there is the, the best estimate of the shared environmental contribution is zero. And those shared environmental contributions will be things like you know, family attitude to diet, household wealth, all those phenomena contribute, as far as one can estimate, zero to, um, uh, to phenotypic variation. Now, of course, one problem with this is that uh, these... Uh, sums are carried out by subtraction and the non-shared environmental contribution is by subtraction. It's the residual that you can't explain by genetics in the broad, genetic factors in the broad or narrow sense or shared environment. So measurement error goes into the non-shared environmental level of variance. Non-shared variance is usually quite high. I mean, classic estimates for obesity or body mass index are 30-40% of variances due to the non-shared environment, but it is by subtraction. Now, one can look at, one can 
divide these categories of environmental factors into measurement error, then into non-systematic, non-shared environment. This would be stochastic processes during development and beyond. One of the, you know, one boy just gets falls out, you know, gets dropped by just an accident, something which can uh, basically be classified as stochastic, accidental. And th these obviously are non-shared. So that would be one category of non-shared uh, sort of factor, accidents, stochastic processes. And then the, uh, one category would be measurement error, and the third category would be things that um, uh, environmental factors that cause children in the same family to differ. So these, these, these would be non-shared when you're estimating phenotypic variance, but they, could, they would cause people, siblings, to differ. So they could explain why siblings are so different. And these are the, what's called the systematic non-shared environment. Now one thing which is obviously different between uh, siblings, except twins, is birth order. Well, even with twins, they don't come out identically, but you know what I mean. But, you know, siblings differ by birth order. One of them is uh, second born, one of them is third born, etc. And that's why there's been lots of investigation, including the field of obesity, there's been lots of investigation of birth order effects. Are there important birth order effects? <coughs> and there's been some claims, some rather elaborate, I think over-elaborate claims have been made about the contribution of birth order, but the birth order gender differences, obviously, um, uh, systematic. And then there's sibling interaction. People have got uh, more than one offspring will know that there's always a biffer and there's a biffy, you know. That's a very different experience, being biffed or being doing the biffing. So sibling interaction are clearly not shared. Parental treatment may be not shared. And studies that have actually tried to observe this, even when parents report that they treat their, 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 their offspring similarly, there can be non-shared uh, treatment. And then there's extra familial networks, peer groups, teachers, and television. I think that I'm, I'm just summarising this is from uh, Poem and Daniels 20 years ago. Uh, clearly, today, if we're talking about this, we've talked about you know, Facebook and Bebo and the internet, and, uh, and just, uh, teachers, I don't think, would feature quite so much as a, as a driver of uh, phenotypic variation. But, but these things are obviously not shared, things that the, that the different kids will grow up and uh, get involved in and elicit for themselves. So that brings us to the gloomy prospect. So Plowman and Daniels sum this up and said, what's happening environmentally to make children in the same family so different from one another? One gloomy prospect is that the salient environment might be unsystematic, idiosyncratic or serendipitous events such as accidents, illnesses, other traumas, as biographers often attest. So they're saying, well, because, well it could be that, that one's looking at purely stochastic non-chair environmental factors that drive a lot of phenotypic variation. As they say, biographies often attest, the example they give, a nice example, is of Darwin. This is Darwin's young man. We all know Darwin as uh, one of the co-popularisers of uh, the theory of natural selection with Wallace. Uh, and in Darwin's autobiographical, autobiographical writings and reading biographies of Darwin, one knows how very particular, particular circumstances which led Darwin to this pathway. He went on, basically he went on the Beagle. If Darwin hadn't gone on the trip, Beagle trip, rather unlikely, he would have co-discovered Natural Selection with Wallace, and we would be celebrating the 150th anniversary of Wallace publishing his paper on the 150th anniversary of Darwin. Um, and, you know, so Darwin said, you know, the voice of the Beagle was, has been by far the most important event in my life and has determined my whole career. Yet it depended on so small a circumstance as my uncle offering to drive me 30 miles to Shrewsbury, so we had to be driven to meet the uh, captain of the boat, uh, and uh, if, if his uncle hadn't been willing to drive him, he wouldn't have gone, he wouldn't have gone on the Beagle. And the other thing was that, uh, um, was that when he was uh, interviewed for the job by the captain, who later became one of these coaches like suicides, as 
many of you will know, uh, when he was interviewed, he, uh, he didn't like his nose, that he thought Darwin's nose uh, indicated someone, he was interested in phren phrenology, he thought Darwin's nose indicated someone who'd be unreliable under pressure, and didn't want to take him, but, um, but uh, in the end he decided that the, sh that the shape of Darwin's nose wasn't such a block to, uh, <laughs> to a guy, but if his nose had been even less... Uh, it had been even less distinguished than uh, Darwin wouldn't have been on the Beagle. He would, we've never heard of Charles Darwin, you know. And again, I don't think everyone looks individual. But if you look at individual biographies, there are always these these events which determine trajectory. And if that's the case for whether you discover natural, whether you popularise natural selection or not, how much equally could it be the case for whether you die at age sixty or die at age eighty? So, and, and in this review, they say you know, it's possible that non-shared environmental influences could be unsystematic in, in the sense of stochastic events that were compounded over time to make children in the same family different in unpredictable ways. Such capricious events, however, are likely to prove a dead end for research. So, so the reason for not investigating these is the heuristic reason that you're not going to get grants to investigate stochastic events because you can't discipline them. They can't be disciplined in any form of quantitative study. So it's a more interesting heuristically are possible systematic sources of difference within, uh, within families. So what followed from Plowman and Daniel's paper 20 years ago, that's one of the citation classics changed the field, was a huge investment in studies that tried to investigate systematic non-shared environmental factors, these systematic non-shared environmental factors that I mentioned, such as sibling interactions, peer groups, influences, etc. And a big investment in study of those, in particular in behavioural um, genetics. Uh, these papers in behavior of brain sciences, as some of you all know, are sort of a short paper, then about 40 pages of commentaries by uh, other experts in the field, and then a response to the commentaries. And in response to the commentaries, uh, Plowman and Daniel said, when we said capricious events are likely to be dead end for research, we didn't mean to minimize the possible importance of such events as sources of non-shared environment. Our point was that it makes sense to start the search by looking for systematic sources of variation. So this is rather like the story of the, you know, the drunk uh, found under the uh, street lamp who is asked uh, what, what he's doing. He says, I'm looking for his keys. And they say, well, did you drop them here? And he says, no, I dropped them over there. He said, why are you looking there? He said, well, you know, that's where the light is. So I'm looking where the light is. You know? So that's rather, that's the best argument <laughs> to be advanced for studying uh, systematic non-shared <laughs> factors. So then this huge investment after 1987, very good studies, a whole series of instruments were developed for looking at sibling interaction, sibling interaction scale, there's parental sibling interaction scales, there's ways of studying peer groups, there's a huge birth of, uh, there was a huge growth of work on birth order effects, some of it summarised in Frank Soloway's popular uh, tome, um, Born to Rebel, that some of you have heard of, and, other, and, and, and work like that. Uh, and when um, uh, Eric Turkheim and Mary Waldron in 2000 came to review, and they did a, a systematic review and a meta-analysis of studies that have explicitly investigated non-shared environment, systematic aspects of non-shared environment, their bottom line was that for virtually all phenotypes, for virtually all outcomes, the best estimate of systematic non-shared environment was near zero. So you have near zero estimates of shared environment, near zero estimates of, of systematic non-shared environment. It, there is a possible cause of unexpected increase in variance in siblings <coughs> it's made selection. I'm going to talk about that, mark of its diversification. Yeah, I'll come to that. Uh, that that makes uh, yeah. choose different... Yeah. Uh, uh, I'll come to discuss that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, 
so, so, so, so there we have, so, so there we have the, the, the review of, the, of looking at systematic non-shared uh, environment. Now, of course, if, if, if we've gone back now before Plano and Daniels, there's quite good reasons to believe, uh, to, to, there's quite good reasons to think that much phenotypic variation is purely stochastic. This is, this is the first drawn path diagram. Those of you who like structural equation models and path diagrams will know that uh, they were invented by the population geneticist Seal, Seal Wright, actually in the paper in 1920, but he didn't have a, didn't have a nice diagram in the 1920 paper. But in 1921, he looked at uh, uh, the explanation for the piebald pattern in guinea pigs. This is his diagram, so how much, of the, how much of the coat was dark and how much of it was white in piebald guinea pigs. He did the formal path diagram, and he came to the... He got chance in notice feeding it, and he came to the notion that about two-thirds of the variance is what he calls intangible variance. And this term of intangible variance is picked up by uh, quantitative genesis since then. So he said, you know... A big chunk of the variance in just explaining the uh, colour of, uh, um, of these guinea pigs must be due to irregularities in development, due to the intangible sort of errors to which the word chance is applied stochastic events. And I guess, uh, being interested in obesity, many of you will have seen these. Uh, this, this is supposed to be a popular slide on obesity. Rather than looking at the primal <coughs> pattern in guinea pigs, this is the, uh, the, uh, this is the uh, Gucci mouse. These mice have the same germline. Uh, you know, the genome, as far as one can know, they're massively inbred mice, but one of them, the mother's uh, given an absolutely toxic amount of what would be an absolutely toxic amount of folate, uh, and the other isn't, and you actually change the colour of the mouse coat. Now, these, the, the pictures are always shown like this. In fact, you have a huge number of mice that lay in between. They don't have this neat, you know, uh, orange or brown pattern. They lay in between. They're mottled a bit like these guinea pigs. But uh, this is often shown as one talks about you know, the epigenetic determinants of this, and I think, the, of course, the, uh, if you don't know the answer to any question, uh, you just say that the answer is uh, epigenetic. Uh, the, the term was introduced, as again many of you will know, by a uh, uh, hero of mine, Conrad Wallington, in the uh, early 1940s. I mean, you know, Wallington just talked about developmental uh, processes, what he called the, you know, the epigenetic landscape. Uh, and this was how this was his um, metaphor for it was you know that was you get to places where there's basically a virtual just a quantum difference between moving down one path and the other, but you're canalised. Once you move down one path, you can't jump back uh, over. You can't jump back over the hill. So so tiny events, which, to which the word chance is the only word that we can uh, apply to these tiny events. Tiny events lead to canalisation, lead to going down into path dependence and going down um, different uh, developmental paths. And this, of course, will never be never be disciplinable. We can never discipline this quantitatively. This will never be explicable. So, you know, we're, we're looking at, obviously, people who are interested in human obesity, we look at human body mass index, and we have a, we have a rather difficult um, study group, because we have, you know, we have outbred uh, humans, you can't really make them, and uh, get these nice uh, crosses, and you can't get, you can't, certainly can't make them for 500 generations and get almost genetically identical. Uh, 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 hu um, humans, but of course, in, in uh, other fields, from you know, C. elegans to Drosophila to uh, mice, of course, you can control very well. You can control genetic variation. You can control environmental variation. This is an extraordinary. This is a paper summarising some extraordinarily important work by Klaus Gartner, best-known papers in Nature in 1981, uh, when he introduced this term, third component of random variability. Gartner was involved in. Uh, in uh, massively inbred mouse studies, where, the, where the, basically they're all genetically germline genome mosaics, but it's virtually identical. And what that allows 
allows you to do is to do embryo transfers, so you can actually look whether there's a maternal to uterine effect, influencing um, uh, phenotypes as well, the differences between genetically identical animals. And uh, they've been in, they were in, um, in obviously, captivity <coughs> in breeding stations, and he'd, he'd, he'd take some of them out and free them into the wild, which is just about the most amazing <laughs> shock, environmental shock you could ever imagine. And what he noticed was that very small amounts of uh, feature variation could be explained by environmental changes. Even in this situation, we have this, we have this uh, perfect model. Very little could be explained by um, uh, intrauterine environmental effects, intrauterine environment as opposed to postnatal um, uh, environmentally. So it came with this notion of third component, which is basically random or stochastic phenotypic variation. And Gartner introduced this notion about why this might, might have arisen. When, especially when looking at polygenic traits, with uh, you know, which hit fishes in infinitesimal model of lots and lots of small uh, con genetic contributions to phenotype, and his notion here uh, was that if you was that uh, if uh, uh, genetic um, difference caused very large phenotypic differences, then what might happen is that something might have a selective advantage in one environment, and you'd move very rapidly towards move quite rapidly towards fixation in that environment. But if the environmental environment changed, it could, it could indeed be just not compatible um, with survival. And so, the, and, and so the, and the best protection against that was to add large amounts of random phenotypic variation around genetically determined differences in mean phenotype, which would, allow, which, which would maintain genetic diversity in a population. And that random phenotypic uh, variation would protect uh, different uh, forms of um, uh, 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 protect the genetic uh, set point differences, mean level set point differences from extinction. It would keep them in the population, and there's obvious advantages uh, for having uh, for having such a variation. And we obviously only know species which have survived, which have survived. So if you imagine if you have uh, uh, if you have a lab which is set at 30 degrees, and you have Drosophila which do incredibly well at 30 degrees, they do better than any other Drosophila at 30 degrees, but they die at 25 or 35 degrees, you keep your lab at 30 degrees, you crossbreed, you've moved to fixation. Then, then you change the temperature of your lab, you've got no Drosophila left. So, so what he's basically saying is that a, 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 a wonderful uh, strategy is just to add feature variation, which means you don't get Drosophila, which do very well at 30, not at 35 and 25, you get uh, huge added on phenotypic variation. Uh, yeah, that's stochastic phenotypic variation, which protects genetic uh, diversity. Now, that's got this third component of uh, variation, stochastic variation. Now, uh, a second, uh, what one possibility specific to uh, the, the sibling situation, I'm thinking of siblings not just in the, in the, in the, in the human sense, is that the importance of non-shared environmental variance, which includes this uh, stochastic uh, component, is also it could be a good investment strategy for any actual single lineage is to have different uh, with different offspring. If you're a Drosophila, you don't want 550 that do very well at 30 degrees, but die at 25 or 35 degrees. What you want is a diverse group, and then lineages which have diversity of uh, offspring are, would, would, are more likely to survive. And we're in a business school, so I suppose I could mention and then look confused by the notion of market based diversification. So this is like, you have a portfolio, you don't just invest in Northern Rock. That's not a great idea. You have a diverse portfolio and that's protected against shocks. Now, the, the equivalent of that market its diversification, genetically, is you have a diverse portfolio of phenotypes. And that random phenotypic variance 
added to the determined um, variance produces such a uh, diverse portfolio. How many times have mechanisms how this might arise? There's been quite interesting discussions of mechanisms why this might arise. But anyway, so these, so these are reasons why this situation, there's just been so much plastic variation, like, how, how, how much longer have I got? I'm just going on. You've got about another five, five ten minutes. Okay, okay. And uh, maybe in the discussion we'll next time we have a discussion. I can, we can talk about how this can arise, how this is known, how this can arise through, um, through how gene expression uh, works, basically. How there is large amounts of stochasticity in gene expression. And if you look at things like real life expressions, if you see elegans and these other things, you, you know, where you have exactly determined cell number, you get huge, unexplicable differences in things like life expectancy. So stochasticity is understood. It sounds a bit as though this is sort of entering the you know, range of talking about determinism and uh, uh, non-determinism, but the good news is that we don't need to think about that because what we're talking about here as you know, epidemiologists or people interested in phenotypic variation is what we ever could know. I mean, it, it, so I'm not interested in saying whether we did actually know every single molecule in the workforce could we predict whether the incursion is going to commit suicide. There's no way we can ever discipline that in, in, uh, in any study, so, it's, so we might as well not know it. I actually think there's real stochasticity, but that's um, by the by. So what does this mean for uh, epidemiology people interested in studying the causes of uh, obesity, for, should we say, for example? And I think what it, what it means is it brings us back to a series of insights that uh, Geoffrey Rose uh, um, advanced, uh, popularised, uh, some years ago, about what can and can't be done uh, epidemiologically. And uh, uh, Jeffrey um, started out by Jeffrey started out by saying that uh, you know when he's teaching epidemiology, uh, medical students often want to know the question: you know, Why did this patient get this disease at this time? And he's a very polite man, Jeffrey was. So he said it's an excellent starting point when he meets his nonsense question, really. But because students and doctors feel a natural concern for the problems of the individual. The central ethos of medicine is seen as an acceptance of responsibility for sick individuals. That's what we want to understand why is this person ill at this time, and that's what clinical medicine drives people to think of. And of course, and this is some work I did uh, with the anthropologists Charlie Davison and Stephen Frankel about a long, long time ago, 20 years ago, the actual field work was done, was looking at what were the uh, supposed causes of coronary heart disease, which populations, people in South Wales, uh, advanced. Uh, and so this was an ethnographic study looking at causes of coronary heart disease advanced by the population. And um, in one of the papers about this project, we said, you know, it's a commonplace observation, the discipline of social anthropology, the cultural systems of explanation of accountability for the current misfortune, like death or heart attack, as we were interested in, address the two distinct issues of the first, the general kind of misfortune, how and why does it happen, and the second, the site and time of particular misfortune to our explanation. And, and uh, th these two things, the specific cases and the general cases, are also what happens in medicine and what epidemiology has to deal with. And what Jeffrey famously said is, firstly, that the causes that these actually have different answers. The causes of cases can be different from the causes of incidence. He, this, could, this could be body mass index, which what it happens to be serum cholesterol, it doesn't matter. You know, he said the reason within Japan or within East Finland, this is, the reason why you've got higher low cholesterol is probably a mixture of genes and stochasticity of, of developmental processes. Yeah, would be one of the major drivers of where you lie. But the difference between the populations of Japan and East Finland is the diet. It's the Karelian pies eaten in East Finland and the very and the low saturated low fat, low saturated fat diet eaten in Japan. So you just have different factors explain the difference between the populations as explain the difference between 
uh, individuals in many cases. And I um, can do a thought experiment here. If you think, think about unemployment, if you think of the individual level factors that predict unemployment, and lots of studies have done on this, people with low level of education, over 50 years old, short people, minority ethnic group, unkempt appearance, if you're not defer deferential at interview, these factors will all predict whether an individual is unemployed. But of course the same factors, you explain a reasonable proportion of the variance in unemployment, but of course the same factors would actually predict uh, an individual unemployment, uh, whether an individual is unemployed, when the prevailing unemployment rate is 1% or 14%. But of course, if you were you know, leaving full-time education at the time when the prevailing employment rate is 14%, you have a massively higher risk of being employed at 1%, independent of your height or deference of interview. And so a sort of strategy to deal with unemployment of training people to be deferential at interview or, uh, or wear better um, neater clothes isn't, gonna, isn't going to uh, influence the absolute levels of risk which depend upon the prevailing economy. So, uh, uh, we'll just stop you. Two minutes. <laughs> Two minutes. <laughs> well, I'll have to read this out. I, 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 I used this thought experiment in editorial in the BMJ a few, a few years ago, but the comedian Mark Steele said it much better. He's talking about uh, unemployment in the factory. He said, unemployment grew to 2 million, chased towards 3 million. Norman Tebbit famously said the unemployed should get on their bikes and went for work. Unemployment was the result of the unemployed not trying hard enough, in which case, what a peculiar economic century we had. Population must have gone through a period of laziness at the end of the 19th century, then felt a sudden spurt of energy, got jobs until the 1930s, and they got lazy again. Then they perked up around 1938, which was handy, but just in time for the war. This was fine until 1980, when everyone changed their mind and decided to stay in bed all day, which makes sense as this coincides with the invention of the duvets. The duvets did arrive, did arrive in 1980. So the first thing is causes of cases can be different than causes of incidents. The second is you cannot identify the effect of the ubiquitous exposures. If everyone in this room and everyone in Oxford smoked 20 cigarettes a day, you could, you could never demonstrate that smoking causes lung cancer because all cases and controls would all smoke 20 cigarettes a day. So the issue is you cannot identify ubiquitous exposures. With obesity, you know, we know that twin studies show high heritability, but we know that it's increasing very dramatically over time. Of course, you know, twins are all the same age, and if, if, if there's just a change over time, in, uh, which is happening in the balance between energy intake and energy expenditure, this obviously cannot contribute to phenotypic uh, differentiation between people born and at the same time. The determinants of individual risk may be of very minor population health importance. They may, uh, on the other hand, be very useful for understanding causal processes, which I could discuss in the... In the uh, uh, in, uh, afterwards, how we've used the genetic variant related to obesity to actually understand what are the outcomes of obesity, but that's a different issue. The third thing is that, is that if we have group versus individual level exposure and, and, and outcome data, all we can do epidemiologically is look at group level exposures. We're never going to, in my view, we're never going to explain winning, and uh, whereas we can explain differences in lung cancer between populations, we've explained virtually 100% of the variance and differences between populations, and over time, we, can't, we can only get pseudo R squares of 10%, 5 to 10% for individuals, however well we don't measure smoking. So the point is that for, the epidemiological studies can only make inference to the group and not to the individual level. And, one of, and what I'm suggesting here is that one of the reasons for this, which are these are sort of epidemiological truisms, but the reasons for this is that a large proportion of phenotypic variation is going to be stochastic. We're never going to discipline a very large amount of the phenotypic variation. Indeed, attempting to improve individual level explanation can be both unrewarding or it can be diversion. It can just divert us from things we know. 
So you can imagine uh, the, the you can imagine which groups of people are interested in explaining why some people like women goes on to 100, whether she smokes all the time, and some people who smoke don't go and live to 100, because the people are interested in looking at genetic factors that contribute to that, and they will be so within the tobacco industry. So much of the, much of the variation, I suggest, is phenotypic, and if you're starting an epidemiological study, you can either read Epidemiological Methods in Life Course Research, or being inside business school, I thought she'd show a business book. It's the only business book I've ever read, but it's worth reading, Fooled by Randomness, a book which is about how in markets, as well as in uh, epidemiology or in studies of obesity or phenotypic variation, in markets as well, a big, a big uh, um, component of any difference that exists is purely stochastic. That's it. Thank you, George, for a wonderful, wide-ranging talk. I'm sure there are many questions that could take us in all kinds of directions. So the first direction we'll go in is into the other room, and then we'll go in various directions. Thank you.